You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. The Praetorians poked their heads above the walls, looked around, and realized they were the ones in charge. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In our last episode, we talked about the origins of the Praetorian Guard, how it was formed, what it was like to serve, and the unique nature of the relationship between Praetorian Guard and Emperor. We also talked about how that relationship started with Augustus and when it first started to turn dangerous under the reign of Tiberius. And today, we're going to pick up where we left off, which was right at Caligula. Caligula was the great-grandson of the Emperor Augustus. He came to power at the age of 25 after his uncle Tiberius died. Some say the Praetorian prefect Macro smothered Tiberius in his sleep so Caligula could take power. Some also say Caligula might have had something to do with his great-uncle's death. These are all lurid rumors. I think the official line was that Tiberius died in his sleep of natural causes, but there is that rumor that the Praetorian prefect did it. There's also the possibility that Caligula did it, because that sounds like something he would do. It totally does. Caligula was one of the crueler emperors. One example of the kind of shenanigans he got up to was one time at the games, there was a shortage of condemned criminals to be thrown to the wild beasts. Caligula was bored, so he ordered his soldiers to throw some of the audience members into the arena but not before cutting out their tongues so they couldn't object to their fate. And actually, we were lying about not going into too much depth about Caligula. (laughs) Here's some more juicy bits from Suetonius's 12 Caesars. Many men of honorable rank were first disfigured with the marks of branding irons and then condemned to the mines to work at building roads or to be thrown to the wild beasts, or else he shut them up in cages on all fours like animals or had them sawn asunder. Not all of these punishments were for serious offenses, but merely for criticizing one of his shows or for never having sworn by his genius. Caligula forced parents to attend the executions of their sons, sending a litter for one man who pleaded ill health and inviting another to dinner immediately after witnessing the death and trying to rouse him to gaiety and jesting by a great show of affability. 
He had the manager of his gladiatorial shows and beast baitings beaten with chains in his presence for several successive days and would not kill him until he was disgusted at the stench of his putrefied brain. He burned a writer of Italian farces alive in the middle of the arena of the amphitheater because of a humorous line of double meaning. When a Roman knight on being thrown to the wild beasts loudly protested his innocence, he took him out, cut off his tongue, and put him back again. When his grandmother, Antonia, who we've talked about before, gave him some advice, he was not satisfied merely to listen, but replied, remember that I have the right to do anything to anybody. And he meant it. Oh, he did. And that's his grandmother, guys. If you'd say that to your grandmother, you're really bad. Anything to anybody. After a steady dose of this behavior, it's no wonder that a lot of people wanted to get rid of Caligula. These included senators, prominent citizens, and members of the military. But the last straw wasn't any of this horrible stuff that Caligula had done. See, he was stupid enough to bully his beast. Caligula had taken a dislike to a praetorian named Cassius Chirea. Caligula continually mocked him for his high, squeaky voice, calling him a wench and picking on him for being effeminate. And we talked about this in Child Emperors 2 with the Elagabalus section about how it was one of the worst insults a man in ancient Rome could give or receive that another man was effeminate. Kyria was probably in truth the opposite of this. Dio calls him, quote, the hardiest of men. He was a distinguished soldier who had served with honor under Caligula's father, the great war hero Germanicus, helping to subdue the barbarians along the German frontier. He clearly had zero sense of humor about Caligula's teasing. Kyria's revenge took the form of an assassination plot. And this is where, like, all gather in and listen up, people. Gather around, children. We've got a fire. Get the s'mores out. Here we go. So this plot took on a life of its own, drawing in other Praetorians, senators, and men of rank. It wasn't hard to find people who wanted Caligula dead. It went down like this. Caligula was celebrating at a festival, feasting as his council sat at his feet, continually bending over to shower them with kisses. This little display completely nauseated the very manly and the very dignified Chirea. Caligula got up to take a break from all the feasting and foot kissing, and he passed through a narrow hallway beneath the palace where some boys were practicing a hymn in his honor. Caligula stopped to listen, and that's when Kyria and his fellow conspirators attacked. Some accounts say Caligula was stabbed over 30 times. His jawbone was split in half, and he was stabbed in the chest, throat, and genitals. Cassius Dio reports that some even tasted of his flesh. Caligula's personal Germanic bodyguard arrived on the scene too late, but it retaliated anyway, killing not just some of the conspirators, but also a few innocent bystanders. Apparently, they also broke into a nearby theater and threatened to kill the entire audience for hiding the conspirators. It was a bloodbath. This bit is really upsetting to me, the next bit we're going to get to. Not that the other bit wasn't upsetting. But after Caligula was killed, the Praetorians looted his palace, and they killed Caligula's wife and daughter. And his daughter was, I think, about two years old. She was one year old. One year old. And they killed her by smashing her head against a wall. So interesting fact about Caligula's daughter. He said that he knew she was his daughter because she was ferocious, and she used to attack her playmates with her hands and her teeth. Then they discovered Caligula's old uncle, Claudia hiding behind a curtain and they dragged him out and they proclaimed him emperor so this was for the praetorians own protection the beast cannot exist without an emperor as soon as it kills one it needs to make a new one the moment news of caligula's death reached them the senators began debating whether they should return to a democracy which would have resulted in the praetorians being disbanded before we go any further i just want to tell you guys jenny 
What happened after Caligula died? What happened to him? Was he Demnatio Memoriae? Yes, he was. <laughs> we forget your name. We forget your face. I do feel, though, like if you're made Demnatio Memoriae, you're probably so infamous that people are going to remember you down through the ages. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're still talking about him. So the Praetorian Guard acted decisively, choosing their emperor before the Senate could agree on an action. And in reward, Claudius gave the Praetorians a bonus worth five years of their ordinary salary. And this started a venerated tradition of emperors lavishing huge payments payments on the Praetorian Guard upon assuming their role to ensure their loyalty. And I would say that's just a really dangerous precedent, Claudius. Not a good shout. Yeah, he was doing it to save his own life. From here on out, the Praetorians decided that kingmaking was something they could get real used to. Until his sudden promotion, Claudius was continually overlooked and mistreated by the rest of the imperial family. He had a number of physical disabilities, including a limp, tremors in his hands and head, and he sometimes foamed at the mouth. Some historians believe he may have had cerebral palsy. His own family was ashamed of his condition, constantly mocked him, and kept him well away from the line of succession. And that was probably a good thing for Claudius. The imperial family was a shark tank of intrigue and assassination, and nobody saw Claudius as much of a threat, which is probably why he had lived into his 50s by the time he was made emperor. And despite his family's low expectations, he was good at it. Claudius ruled competently for about 13 years. He also married his niece, Agrippina the Younger, who probably poisoned him to death. And when he died in 54 AD, the Praetorians supported his grandnephew Nero. That Nero. That Nero. It was during Nero's reign that the Praetorian Guard was dragged into some of the more humiliating duties of their career. He used the Praetorian Guard to murder his relatives, including his own mother after a plot to kill her via collapsing boat went awry, and his adopted brother, Britannicus, who he had poisoned by a member of his guard. Even more embarrassing, and no doubt the endless mockery of the regular army, the Praetorians were regularly ordered to swell the crowds at Nero's theatrical performances, where the attendance of these performances was mandatory. These guards would be disguised as regular audience members, and they would take note of who was and wasn't there, who was and wasn't clapping loudly enough, and who might be saying negative things about the emperor. Offenders were arrested. Nero dragged the position of emperor further and further into depravity, performing as an actor and charioteer, emulating the dregs of Roman society, and divorcing his high-ranking wife to marry a woman who had once been the wife of a former praetorian prefect, divorcing and then executing his first wife to do that. Initially, the Praetorian Prefect was a guy named Burrus. He was known for his bluntness. One time he told Nero not to ask him his opinion on the same matter more than once. He was also fatherly and proper and protected and guided Nero through the early years of his reign. I mean, he'd have to be. Can you imagine saying that to Nero? Yeah, it's probably Nero when he was like 15 and had just become emperor. So he wasn't that scary yet. As time went on, Burrus grew more and more fed up with watching all this. And Nero thought he was a total buzzkill. Eventually, the old man died of respiratory issues. Some sources claim that Nero had him poisoned. But we'll never know for sure, Jenny. Two other Praetorians took his place. One was Rufus, the not-fun prefect and by-the-books guy who is immediately sidelined. The other was Tigellinus, the fun prefect. This is how fun Tigellinus was. In the year 64, about two years after Burrus's death, he threw a party for Nero that involved flooding a large area and building pontoon floats in the middle of an artificial lake, then building taverns and brothels around its edge. Nero 
and Tigellinos feasted in the center of the lake, while all around the perimeter, the mob held a giant party. And this honestly sounds like the worst party in the history of parties. Here's how Cassius Dio describes it. And I'm going to warn you guys, there is a lot of sexual assault in this party. They would also enter the brothels and without let or hindrance have intercourse with any of the women who were seated there, among whom were the most beautiful and distinguished in the city, both slaves and free, courtesans and virgins and married women. And these were not merely of the common people, but also of the very noblest families, both girls and grown women. Every man had the privilege of enjoying whichever one he wished, as the women were not allowed to refuse anyone. Consequently, indiscriminate rabble as the throng was, they not only drank greedily, but also wantoned riotously, and now a slave would debauch his mistress in the presence of his master, and now a gladiator would debauch a girl of noble family before... I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers... What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. The eyes of her father, the pushing and fighting and general uproar that took place were disgraceful. Many men met their death in these encounters, and many women too, some of the latter being suffocated and some being seized and carried off. So... Nero's reign was the most heinous party you could ever imagine going to. And God, Jenny, can you imagine the hangover? It would be the worst hangover. But it didn't last forever. Over the years, Nero had debased the beast in his house, forcing it to perform more and more degrading acts, including killing his own mother, Agrippina the Younger, who was the daughter of Germanicus. We've talked about him before. He was a noted war hero who'd been wildly popular with the Praetorian Guard. And they didn't want to kill her for that reason. The Praetorians were now ripe for rebellion. came in 68 AD, about 13 years into Nero's reign. Nero's second prefect, the no-fun, incorruptible Rufus, best known for being in charge of the grain dole for seven years without once taking a cut for himself. I mean, how boring is that? Oh, Rufus, I kind of love you. Incorruptible Rufus. He'd surprised everyone by going dark side, conspiring to kill the emperor. Ooh, didn't know he had it in him. I know. Go Rufus. So, unfortunately, Rufus did not manage to kill the emperor. I was rooting for him. Uncorrupt old Rufus, his non-stealing of grain. He was put to death and replaced with a guy named Sabinus. And Sabinus was often left in charge while Nero went out of town with his fun prefect, Hygelinus. Gradually, Sabinus consolidated Praetorian power around himself. In March of that year, the governor of Hispania, a guy named Galba, helped put down a rebellion in Gaul. And in the process, he somehow got himself declared emperor by his troops. Galba was in his mid-60s, and while he had the support of the Senate, who hated Nero, even as they felt compelled to heap praises on Nero's head, mostly to keep their own heads, Galba didn't have enough military strength to be a true threat. That is, until Sabinus threw his support behind him. When he found out, Nero flailed. First, he attempted to flee east, where the provinces were still loyal. His praetorians refused to take him. One even said, quoting Virgil's Aeneid, Is it so dreadful a thing, then, to die? When I did an earlier draft of this episode, I kind of glossed over Nero's death, but it's so haunting that I just feel the need to give you guys the entire thing. 
first, Nero considered throwing himself on Galba's mercy. Remember, Galba is the guy who is coming to replace him. Or even appearing before the public dressed in black and begging as pathetically as he could to be allowed to live and maybe be governor of Egypt. Suetonius tells us that a speech was found in Nero's desk after his death, making these requests, but that Nero didn't dare deliver it because he thought he might be torn to pieces before he even got to the forum. Instead of going to the forum and delivering that speech, Nero took a nap, which is definitely also my preferred mode of dealing with a crisis. And when he woke around midnight, he found that his Praetorian guard had disappeared. After years of abuse, his beast had left him and Nero was alone in his house. He jumped out of bed and dashed off letters to all his friends and none of them answered. He went to their rooms and found them empty and locked. Then he returned to his own room and discovered that his servants had fled, stripping his room of even the bedsheets and the box of poison he kept around for emergencies. So Nero recognized now that things were really dire. He called for a gladiator or anyone else who knew their way around West weapons who might do him in with as little pain as possible. When no one answered his summons, Nero cried, have I then neither friend nor foe? And he, quote, ran out as if to throw himself into the Tiber from Suetonius. Nero was now officially in a total flappy panic. We've all been there. We've all been there, but not quite this bad. A freedman, Phaon, offered him use of his house. Suetonius tells us that, quote, Just as he was, barefooted and in his tunic, Nero put on a faded cloak, covered his head, and holding a handkerchief before his eyes, mounted a horse with only four attendants. At once he was startled by a shock of earthquake and a flash of lightning full in his face, and he heard the shouts of the soldiers from the camp hard by as they prophesied destruction for him and success for Galba. Then his horse took fright at the smell of a corpse which had been thrown out into the road. Nero's face was exposed, and a retired soldier of the guard recognized him and saluted him. When they came to a bypath leading to the villa, he made his way amid bushes and brambles and along a path through a thicket of reeds to the back wall of the house with great difficulty. Here, the aforesaid Phaon urged him to hide for a time in a pit, but he declared that he would not go underground while still alive. Nero crawled through some kind of narrow tunnel into this house, laid down on a couch with a moth-eaten mattress covered by a musty old cloak. His friends begged him to get himself together, but Nero ordered them to dig him a grave instead. While they did it, he wept and repeated, what an artist the world is losing. Nero pleaded with his friends and servants, quote, entreating someone to help him take his life by setting him an example. No one in his entourage appeared too terribly keen on that. And when he heard horsemen outside who'd come to take him alive, Nero stabbed himself in the throat with a little help from his secretary. He died with, quote, eyes so set and starting from their sockets that all who saw him shuddered with horror. I just think that is so creepy, just the corpse and the earthquake and the lightning and the guard recognizing him. Yeah, I mean, I feel a little shudder of horror at that description. Right, it's just a complete horror story of somebody's last panicked hours and just the the haunting image of him taking this nap and waking up in the middle of the night and everybody he knows having fled. Yeah, I mean... That's kind of the fear I have every time I take a nap, to be honest with you. (laughs) There's just something unnatural about napping in the middle of the day, not that I don't love to do it. Nero would agree with you because the worst actually happened during that ill-fated nap. You can't really feel that bad about him, though, because of the terrible parties. He wasn't a great guy. He was a terrible guy. But this is often what happens when you start to look into these people from the ancient world. You find things that make them very human, and then you find things that make them out to be monsters, and it's hard to decide which one they are. Before we move on from that story, this should surprise absolutely no one, but Nero was a Damnata Memoriae. 
I'm so surprised. I feel like he's poster boy for Donato Memoriae. If we were to write the typical description of a Donato Memoriae, what would that look like? The stereotypical image of an emperor fiddling while Rome burnt. Right. I mean, it's not always the people who deserve to be Donato Memoriae who get made that. No. I mean, poor little Severus. I know. Poor little Alexander Severus. What did he do? I mean, he was just a bit too nice, wasn't he? He was way too nice. You got to have a little bit of the ruthless in you if you want to survive in the shark tank. But don't go full Caracalla, right? Don't go full on Caracalla because someone's going to kill you while you piss. I mean, fair enough. So let's get back to the narrative. So after Nero's unfortunate staring I socket death. Galba came into power. Initially, he was supported by the Praetorians, but he lost that support when he refused to pay them their promised bribe. Big mistake. Galba made the point that it was in his habit to levy troops, not buy them. That is a very, very stupid thing to say to this particular beast. The Praetorian Guard hacked Galba to death seven months into his reign. This kicked off the year of the four emperors, in which three men were raised to the throne and then died violently in quick succession. Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, and then finally Vespasian, who ruled for ten years and ushered in the Flavian dynasty. In the next few decades, strong Flavian rulers took the beast in the palace firmly in hand. The Praetorian Guard seemingly went quiet and did not have anything to do with the deaths of Vespasian or his sons Titus or Domitian. After that, the Emperor Trajan came to power in 98. A series of strong emperors followed, and the beast in the palace was once again tamed and purring and sleeping in a perfect shaft of sunlight on warm marble floor. It's such a pretty little thing. So pretty! But this all changed when the sun kind of went out for a little bit and Commodus rose to power in 180 AD. Commodus was the son of Marcus Aurelius, a strong, military-minded emperor. And as soon as his father died of illness on campaign in Germany, Commodus negotiated peace with the Germans his father was fighting so hard against and rushed home to brag about his military exploits anyway, an action that did not ingratiate him with the military. Commodus became known for a violent reign, during which he hired and fired Praetorian prefects, sometimes in the space of a few hours. He had many executed for suspected plotting. Commodus was paranoid and with good reason, as many close to him were plotting his death. As to the rank-and-file Praetorians, Commodus more or less allowed them to run wild, terrorizing the populace, beating random people on the streets, flashing their nipples for Saturnalia beads, and breaking into people's houses with pickaxes. It was Praetorians gone wild. It really was. Spring break. It was spring break all year long. Commodus was eventually strangled to death in a plot orchestrated by his own Praetorian prefect in 192 AD. The Praetorians then elevated a co-conspirator, Pertinax, to the throne, and he paid them 12,000 sesterces each for the favor. But Pertinax didn't last long either. He was soon killed by a group of Praetorians, while the rest of his guard looked on, mainly because he tried to rein in the violent behavior that Commodus had indulged. Spring breaks over, boys! So next, Jenny, the Praetorians proceeded to auction off the throne to the highest bidder. It went down like this. After openly murdering the latest emperor, Pertinax, the Praetorians, who were guilty, fled back to the Castra Praetoria, thinking they were going to be in serious trouble, maybe even have to sit on the naughty stairs. But no repercussions came, and the Praetorians poked their heads above the walls, looked around, and realized they were the ones in charge. They did 
what any one of us would do, they posted a notice offering the empire for sale. On Craigslist. (laughs) On Craigslist. Right. (laughs) eBay? Was it eBay? The sources don't say, but they do say that most senators were completely appalled by this. A few of them, however, believed at the chance, including Pertinax's father-in-law, Sulpicianus, and an ambitious senator named Julianus. Sulpicianus, dead Pertinax's father-in-law, entered the Castor Praetoria and started negotiations with the Praetorians, shutting the door behind him and locking out the other contenders. Julianus, who'd been pulled from a banquet and prodded on by his family, who really wanted to see him win, had to stand outside the walls and advertise his offer with much shouting and waving of signs. This started a bidding war, with Sulpicianus on the inside and Julianus on the outside, and the soldiers running between the two to egg each bidder on. Eventually, Julianus offered 25 5,000 sesterces to every man. The guards accepted his offer, they opened the gates, and they declared Julianus their new emperor. It didn't end well for Julianus, however. He couldn't afford the cash payouts that he'd promised, and he was executed 66 days after buying the throne. According to Cassius Dio, his last words were, What evil have I done? Whom have I killed? Oh, Julianus. Don't make promises to the Praetorian Guard that you can't keep. Grade school survival. 101. Right. The next emperor, Septimius Severus, did not gain power through the Praetorians. He was chosen by the legions in Pannonia, where he was governor. One of his first acts as emperor was to disband the Praetorian Guard, who had been very, very naughty, and replace them with his own men. Severus stayed in power for 18 years. He admonished his sons, Geta and Caracalla, who we talked about in our Child Emperors episode, to love the army and to scorn all else. But that didn't help them when he died. Caracalla had his Praetorian guard murder his brother and co-emperor, Geta, and then ushered in another reign of terror and paranoia. Caracalla eliminated people he perceived as his dead brother's allies and friends. Many of these included members of the Praetorian guard. A number of prefects died violently. One committed suicide, and another was executed by axe. This did not endear Caracalla to the beast. Eventually, Caracalla was stabbed to death by someone from his own guard while he was taking a piss. Afterward, he was made a Demnato Memoriae. Right, so after the death of Caracalla, the Praetorian Guard embarked on a king-making and murdering spree. Their victims included Elagabalus... Demnato Memoriae. Maximinius Thrax. Teacup Poodle and Demnato Memoriae. Poopy Enus and Bulbinus in the same year. Unfortunately named, but not Demnato Memoriae. And Philippus II, the son of the Emperor Philip the Arab. Both Demnato Memoriae. Say it with me, boys and girls. Demnato Memoriae. If you keep rolling with us, you'll see that Jenny and I just love to call it a Nata Memoriae when we see one. We do. We can spot one at 12,000 paces. <laughs> Philippus was, incidentally, another child emperor. He was killed in his mother's arms at the age of 12, and we didn't really cover him in the child emperor's episode because he didn't really get time to do much. But during this period, emperors were assaulted in their homes, killed with their families, dragged through the streets, and mutilated by angry mobs. The beast in the house officially had rabies. And in the early 300s, someone finally put it down. That person was Constantine the Great. 
Constantine was the son of an officer in the Roman army, Constantius I, who served as Praetorian Prefect under the Emperor Maximian in 288 AD. At this point, the empire had been divided into the eastern and western halves, and it had become so unwieldy and inefficient that each half needed two emperors, an Augustus, or senior emperor, and a Caesar, junior emperor. Maximian ruled the western half and promoted Constantius, his Caesar, or junior emperor. The eastern empire also had a senior emperor, or Augustus, whose name was Diocletian, and a junior emperor, Galerius. And don't worry, you guys, this is not going to be on the test. This is just giving you the background. Together, these four formed the Tetrarchy, a gang of maneuvering frenemies who more or less kept the empire from collapsing for about 17 years. But things started to unravel when Diocletian and Maximian, the two senior emperors, abdicated. They were the first Roman emperors to abdicate the position without dying, and the junior Caesars were made Augusti. They both raised their own Caesars. Galerius chose Maximian's son, Maxentius, while Constantius chose his son, Constantine. Infighting ensued, and by 312, Maxentius and Constantine were at war. The two met at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, where Constantine reputedly painted his soldier's shields with the symbol of Christ, which this early would not have been the cross as we know it today. It might have been the Cairo, a star-like symbol with the top arm in the shape of a P. Anyway, the Praetorian Guard fought on Maxentius's side, and they lost. The Milvian Bridge collapsed under the weight of Maxentius and his fleeing troops, leaving the Praetorians with their backs to the river, facing down Constantine's army as their emperor drowned behind them. They didn't know it yet, but it was their last stand. Constantine converted to Christianity after that victory, and he was later canonized as a saint. He also disbanded the Praetorian Guard. Unlike Severus, over a hundred years earlier, he did not bring the beast back to life with his own hand-picked men. Instead, he let it die for real this time. The surviving Praetorians were split up and reassigned, mostly among the contentious and violent border regions along the Danube and Rhine rivers. Many of them received accolades for their brave fighting. Meanwhile, the Castra Praetoria was destroyed, its gates blocked, and its walls pulled down or incorporated into the city walls. Finally, the beast in the palace was slain. And there you have it, folks. That's the story of the Praetorian Guard. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, come and find us and talk to us over on Twitter. We're an ancient hist fan. That's hist with a T, the sound a cat would make if it could make a T sound. And we'll also be on Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl. And don't forget to subscribe on Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, iTunes. And if you like us, give us a rating. And before you go, we've got a small request. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep doing it, you can head over to our website and click on Buy Us a Latte. That will take you to our Ko-fi page where you can make a small donation to support the podcast. Your support helps us pay for our expenses, including sound, hosting, research materials, and yep, caffeinated beverages. And your support is hugely appreciated. Thank you so much, and we will see you in two weeks. 